Psalm 27 from verse 7 to 14. So um, a couple weeks ago, we did talk about Psalm 27. We went through verse 1 to 6. So we're going to sort of finish up that psalm uh, today. So I am going to attempt. Good. I'm going to attempt to recite it. So please follow along in scriptures. Don't laugh at my mistakes. Just, um, just bear with me, right? So, and the title of the sermon, I always forget this, is In the Midst of Waiting, part two. Uh, the first one was In the Midst of Waiting, part one. So, you know, I'm very creative like that. So, In the Midst of Waiting, part two. <laughs> so, Psalm 27 from verse, uh, I'm going to go 1 to 14. And the reason I do this is just so as to encourage all of us, right, to get more into the word and I'll make some mistakes, but it doesn't matter. You know, you guys will follow along. So, Psalm 27 starting from verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When my enemies assail me to eat up my flesh, my foes and my adversaries, it is they who shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamps around me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rises against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, this is what I ask for, that I may dwell in the temple, in the house of the Lord, all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, right? For he will hide me uh, in a shelter on the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me up high upon a rock, and then shall my head be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, right? I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Verse 7, this is where we're going to focus on, 7 onwards, right? Hear, O Lord, when I cry out to you, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. Your face, O Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not away from your servant in anger. Oh, you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. See, though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we... Where do we start from? We are always in a season of waiting, God. And sometimes it's just so hard to wait, to long for healing or deliverance or a change in our situations. It, it can be so demoralizing sometimes, God. And sometimes we wonder what's the point of everything. But you are the point, God. You are always the point. And my prayer today for all of us, including myself, is that you will open our eyes, that we will see how much you love us and the extent to which you will go for us, and that we will learn from you 
what the right posture of our heart should be, even as we wait upon you. So Holy Spirit, come lead us, come teach us, prepare our hearts to hear from you. Let everyone hear your words, not mine. And peradventure, there are things I misrepresent. Please correct them in the heart of everyone here and also in my heart. And at the end of the day, our prayer is that you are always lifted up and exalted, that we are humbled, and that we continue to become transformed into your likeness, even as we see you with unveiled faces. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, uh, the last time we looked at Psalm 27, we looked at verse 1 to 6, right? And we started off with this idea in Christianity of the doctrine of the already, but not yet, right? It's the idea of the now, but then there is a future. So for example, we are right now partaking of the kingdom of God, right? We are children of God, but we haven't seen the full fulfillment of that kingdom, right? We still struggle with sin, for example. We still struggle with things like death. So we talked about the doctrine of the already, but the not yet, right? Right now, we are partaking of the kingdom of God, but there is a full fulfillment that we are moving towards. Uh, I believe last week, Nick mentioned, used the idea of the wilderness, right? So the children of Israel have left Egypt, right? They are moving towards the promised land, right? So there is the already, they've left Egypt, and then they are moving towards the promised land, the not yet. And between that is the wilderness, right? And Nick touched on how uh, the wilderness is this place of hardship and deficiency and little water. And for us, especially today, we have been freed of sin, right, of the kingdom of the enemy. And we are moving towards the new heavens and the new earth and the promised land of being with God, right? I say all of that to say between those two end points, from Nick's analogy last week was the wilderness. From the analogy here in Psalm 27 is the waiting. Right? So we are always in that season of waiting. Right? And so during our last time in Psalm 27, we drew some conclusions. We talked about the, the way we wait on God is to continue to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Right? So like how David was saying in verse 4, one thing have I desired of the Lord, this is what I ask of that I may dwell in the temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord, all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, right? The interesting thing you note there is verse 1 to 3 talks about enemies and all of that, right? And his solution is I want to gaze upon God. He's not running into the temple to hide from enemies. He's running there to gaze upon God, right? So, and then we also touched on why do we wait? And Nick also touched on this. Nick talked about how in the wilderness, God leads us there for two reasons. One is to test us, which from the analogy we drew in Psalm 27, we talked about God makes us wait so that we can see the depravity of our own hearts and how much we need him. And then Nick talked about the next point is God leads us into the wilderness to teach us. And then the analogy we drew upon is God make, leads us into the waiting to bring about a necessary dying to self, where we come to trust in him, right? So this is all what we've talked about before, right? Psalm 27, 1 to 6, sort of lays this foundation of what it looks like to wait. And today I actually want to go into how do we practically wait? What does that look like? Right? Is this good? Are you guys hearing me? 
Okay, all right. Seems like I'm hearing myself. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. All right, so as we join it together today, I want you to be thinking about certain things in the sense of where are you waiting today? Where is your season or what is your season of being in the wilderness or waiting, right? So, for example, it could be the repeated arguments or the intolerance between you and your spouse, right? It could be that you or someone you know has just received a certain diagnosis from the doctor that actually means life is going to change. Um, a friend of mine is about 37. He actually just, he, he, he was, um, what's it called? I'm missing it right now. A couple weeks ago, maybe six weeks ago, he had a stroke. Um, and he's 37. And in my mind, I'm just thinking, life is about to, I mean, life has significantly changed for him. He has two little kids, he's married. And, you know, I think as of Memorial Day, he couldn't talk. Now he can talk. You know, his right side is still weak. He still struggles with his words. And that's a significant shift for him, right? And his family. So he's in that season now. It could be the longing to be loved and known, right? Sometimes it's... It's the chaos of work and how that sucks everything out of you. And you're just struggling to balance things. And for, for a topic that has been in the news lately, sometimes it's depression. And trying to struggle through that and just wanting to live a meaningful and purposeful life. Right? So that could be a season of waiting. And sometimes it's just this idea of that I'm not enough. Right? I'm not smart enough. I'm not beautiful enough. Whatever it is. I don't have enough money. Right? So be thinking about your own season or where you are. In a sense, be thinking about your own learning space because that's what that period is. That's what the season of waiting is. Truthfully, we are all going to be in that season in one way or the other while we are here on this earth. Right? It, it doesn't change. We are always going to be in there. And this is why it's so important for us to have the right foundation of how to wait. Right, and to delve into this. So again, as you think about that, hold in one hand your season or what you're going through or what a loved one is going through. It could be the passing of a loved one. Right? And then also just listen to what the Holy Spirit might say to you, even as we journey together today. Right? So that as you hold those two things, God will be able to enlighten you and hopefully just give you peace and strength as we move forward. So let me go back to Psalm 27. So Psalm 27, like we said, first six verses is more of like an intellectual foundation. And then verses 7 to 14 is sort of getting into what does it seem like to wait. So if you look at verses 1 to 3, the psalmist starts out and says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Right? But in verse 7, he says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry out to you. <laughs> it's almost like that contrast, right? And so what we are seeing is, there's that contrast from the absolute confidence, right, to this desperate pleading for God, right? It's not contradictory. It just means he's human, right? And just like every single one of us, there are times we are basically cruising with God, and there's sometimes we're basically struggling, right? But what I want you to see, what I'm hoping you see in all of this, that through everything, God is still our refuge, God is still the one we're hoping. And so I don't want you to treat this simple, simply as a beautiful piece of poetry or artwork. 
but actually as reality, right? So here are some of his words that shows you his own anxiety and agony. Verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Verse 9, hide not your face from me, turn not your servant away in anger. Verse 9b, cast me not off, forsake me not. Right? The repetition of such language emphasizes the seriousness of his situation and where he's at today and the things he's struggling with, whatever that might be. Right? So I'm going to organize uh, the headings today on that three, three. I'm going to organize my thoughts today on that three major headings. And I'm going to start out with the first one, which says first things first. So going back to verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud to you, be gracious to me and answer me, right? In the midst of waiting, the first thing the psalmist does is he turns to God. He turns to Yahweh, right? And we talked about how that name Yahweh represents for David and for the Israelites. It represents the goodness and the graciousness of God. It carries along with it basically all of God's affections and intimacy with his people, right? It's a covenantal name they can depend on. And so he turns the first, right? His face is firmly secure on God. In essence, to David, him saying this prayer, he's basically saying, I have no other hope but you. And so he cries out to God, hear, O Lord, hear, O Yahweh, right? He cries out to God. That's the very first thing. We see the same example in Jesus, actually. So in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, so this is probably him in Gethsemane, or maybe this passage is talking about him in Gethsemane. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Supplication is kind of like you're begging. He offered up prayers and supplications. Now hear this. With loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And it was heard because of his reverence. And we see the same model. You see, Jesus is not confused as to who is leading the dance. Right? He's not. He knows who the captain of the ship is. Now, if Jesus knows that, how much more me and you? And so the first thing is we always turn to God. That's always the first one. Right? Interestingly enough, in verse 8, we see God speak. Right? And this is probably the only time in the entire psalm we hear a word from God. Right? So let me go there, verse 8. Uh, sorry, verse 8, it says, you have said, meaning God has said, seek my face. Right? So, interestingly enough, in, in the midst of the psalmist problems and issues, God's answer is not, I'm going to kill all your enemies and save you. His answer is, seek my face. The question is, why? I mean, God sees his need. God sees our needs. Why does God turn us first to himself? Right? Here's the answer. See, in every situation we go through, in our season of either the wilderness or the waiting, the aim of the enemy is not really your job or your marriage or your health. It's not. His aim is always to separate you from God. His aim is always to make you reject God. It's always to, to make you think God is not really out there for my good. That's always his aim. Everything else is just a means to an end, to that end. And so God will, God will direct us to himself because he is also tackling the issue beneath the issue. 
He's trying to let you see that I am not just the problem solver, I am actually the solution. Right? And that in, in, in coming to me, in seeking my face, in having me, you have everything you need in me. Right? And, and so that's the point. That's why God will go beneath the problem to redirect all, to redirect us to ourselves. Right? And again, we see the same approach with Jesus. Right? When, when Jesus came to the earth, the idea of the Messiah for uh, the people around that time was he was going to deliver them from the government of Rome. The kingdom of Rome, if you wish, right? But Jesus was going after the kingdom beneath the kingdom, right? The kingdom of sin, the enemy of the flesh, right? And this is why God would give Jesus for our sake on the cross so that in seeing that, we know that we, we know the extent of his love for us, right? So the, the, in, in every situation we are in, the gift that God always gives is himself. Right? That is always the gift he gives. Right? Because in that gift, you have everything else. This is why Romans 8, 31 to 32 would say this. What then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to the waiting, the wilderness? You can put it in your situation there, right? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this is God. He who did not spare his own son, see the extent of his love, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? So the, the gift God gives is always himself. Hence, the, 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 the directive, seek my face. Now, the psalmist's response to that is... My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Right? You, you don't see the psalmist sort of pointing his finger at God and being angry. By the way, it's okay to be angry. God can handle that. Right? It's very okay. It's more than okay with handling that. Right? But I would say he would always lead you to this place where you seek his heart. Right? That is always the appropriate response. And of course, we grow in that. It's always a process. Now, what this says of the psalmist is that he's not actually after deliverance as much as he's after God. That's why he would say, your heart, O Lord, do I seek? Right? Your face, O Lord, sorry, do I seek? So the question, obviously, for us is, how do we respond during our own waiting or our own wilderness or during our own trials? You know, let the psalmist example be an encouragement to you. Right? Let, let it be a way for you to lay this foundation of seeking first after God, and then every other thing will be added. It might not be in accordance to your own timeline and exactly how you want it to be done, right? but, but what you will find out is when you look back on it, you will be filled with more joy. And so you, you might ask the question, how do we prioritize God? How do we make God First, right? First things first, right? It starts off with just praying for the desire for God. Right? It starts off there. And as you pray for that desire, God will respond. God will fill you with his goodness. And so, assuming, let's say we've got into that point where we see God as first in our lives, right? First things first. 
the question then becomes, what else can we learn from the psalmist that we can apply in our season of waiting? Right? So again, in verse 8, we establish that the psalmist's heart, his true aim is God. It's not as much after deliverance as he is after God. Again, in the context of enemies, he turns first to the, king, to the temple of God and says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord of the days of my life, right? And then he cries out to God. And when God responds and says, seek my face, he responds with the same idea. Your face, oh Lord, do I see? So uh, what he's really after is the presence of God himself. What he desires more than anything else, what he pleads for, is for Yahweh to be with him. Right? So we've already established that. Now I want to peel out three other things we can get from the psalmist from verse 9 to 12. In verse 9, we, we see this statement where he says, turn not away from your servants in anger. Right? And say, oh, you who have been my help. Right? And the sense I get from that is almost this deep contrition of heart that the psalmist has. Right? And the point I want to make is this. Despite his sins or misgivings or whatever it is, he turns to God. Right? So, don't believe that lie that Satan comes with and says, somehow God would not accept you. Or you're too somehow far gone. Or your sins have created this wall between you and God. It, it's not true. Right? No matter where you are, no matter what has happened, if the psalmist can go back to God, we can always go back to him. Right? You see, the, the psalmist has no mediator between himself and God, we have Christ. Right? So the psalmist has a human high priest that offers sacrifices. We have an eternal high priest that offered himself on the cross. Right? See, the, the psalmist sees shadows pointing towards Christ. We have the benefit of seeing the cross. So no matter where you are, even with deep contrition in your heart, always go back to God. Wherever you may be, right? Always, always go back to God. You see, Satan is going to come with this idea of, you know, your sins are too crazy. Look at all the things you've done, and you're too depraved, which is true. At least it's true for me, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you can always remind him that in spite of all of that, I am still more loved than I can ever understand. In spite of all of that, the arms of God are always open to me to come back to him. Always. Right? So the, the first thing is, in that season of waiting, there might be a deep contrition of heart. Well, there should be. But don't let that hold you back. Always go back to God. It's not about how you feel. Just keep pushing back to him. Right? Now, the next thing I want to draw out there is that the psalmist, he rehearses in his head the character of God. Right? And you see that from verse 9 all the way to 12, and I'm going to show that real quick. Verse 9, he says, Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you who have been my help. He sees God as his helper. So he's peeling out the character and the nature of God. Verse 9b, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. He sees God as a savior. Verse 10, 
For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. He sees God as a faithful companion whose love supersedes even his most intimate relation. Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. He sees God as his teacher and a guide. Verse 12, give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breed out violence. He sees God as his deliverer. The point of all of this is that in the midst of waiting, as you bring to mind the character of God, it strengthens your faith. Right? It reminds you of God's love for you. Right? It has a way of empowering you and letting you understand that God is so much more than your situation and your problem and that he loves you. And that has a way of, it does two things, I think. I think on one hand, it humbles us because we know we are not deserving. And then on the other hand, it exalts God. And the exaltation of God in our minds makes us realize that God is infinitely superior than our situation, right? Just far beyond it. Right? But that he also cares for us. Right? And, and that wherever we are in, whatever it is that is going on, he is in there with us. And he will bring about a solution. Now again, it, it might not work out exactly as we want. But what he brings about is truly the best at the end of the day. And sometimes that end will be in the next life, right? When we get to see everything from the light of eternity. Right? So I'm not trying to minimize the pain and some of what we go through. I'm just trying to help us understand and have that eternal perspective. That one, God loves you, always loves you. And that two, whatever you're going through, he is right there with you. And that as you recall his character and his nature, he strengthens your faith. I want to quickly go back to verse 10 to sort of highlight something I'd said earlier. So he says, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Right. Again, in, in the midst of waiting or the wilderness, we often think I'm there because I've done something horribly wrong and God is punishing me and it's like a punitive punishment right? and he's getting after me and this is judgment and he wants to destroy me, right? But this verse sort of eliminates that because this verse is saying, though my father and my mother, my closest companions, right? He's using that as an analogy. Though they forsake me, the Lord will take me in. And that phrase that the, the Lord will take me in is the picture of a father um, that's lifting up his child with the intent of providing for his need. Right? And so I'm saying all of this to say, sometimes in the midst of waiting when we think this is punishment, it could be discipline, don't get me wrong. But the discipline is always to reunite you with God. It's always to increase your intimacy with God, and it is for your good, always. Right? We see that in Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews 12. Right? It talks about discipline. Right? So, but but don't, don't give room to the enemy with the lies of God is judging you, and this is why you're going through this, and you're not good enough, and you must have done A, B, C, D, and E, and do you remember what you did 10 years ago? Right? It's not that. 
Right? Truthfully, if God were to punish us, like, we would all be done for. Right? It, it's never about that. If there is discipline, it is simply to draw you back to himself. So going back to verse 11, and this is the third thing I want to peel out. So we talked about how um, there was deep contrition in the heart of the psalmist in his waiting. We talked about how he recalls the character of God as he's praying to God, and that strengthens his faith. And then the last thing I want to peel out from here is the path of the pilgrim. Right? As much as the psalmist is seeking deliverance right, from his enemies and really is really seeking God, we've established that, right? He's more after God than he is after deliverance. He's also committed to the path of becoming more and more like God. He's committed to the way of God. Hence, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Right, so for the psalmist, it's not just that he wants deliverance. He wants God. And he wants to be on this path, this way towards God, towards being more like God. So for, for some of us today, it could be that despite the mockings of our friends who belittle our commitment to purity, we are still committed to that path. Right? It could be that you've experienced career demotion, but you're still committed to that life of integrity and that your life is not defined by what you have or what people say about you. Right. It could be that in spite of the jeering of peers, the, the pilgrim wrestles with her fears and shame before the Almighty, knowing that God loves her. Right. It could be that you sidestep this illusion of financial security and you swim against the current of society by finding your value in the fact that you are a beloved child of God. Right, so th these are the different ways that examples that we might be committed to that path of the pilgrim. We see that in the psalmist. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. Lead me on a level path means remove all obstacles so that I can be more and more aligned to you. Now, how do we walk this path? How do we walk the path of the pilgrim? You see, we cannot turn to God or have God as priority in our lives if we do not know God. Right? And we talked about how that starts with praying for the desire for God, seeking the face of God, asking that God nurtures in us a desire for himself. And then as God nurtures that, what I'm confident of, or my point of view in this, is that God will continue to guide you into different, um, we could call them practices, that increases your intimacy with himself. Right? An example of that is what we're doing here. Right? We're gathered together here, fellowshipping together, right? That, that's part of it. Right? And, and we've talked about this before in terms of um, spiritual disciplines and things we can do to help us continue to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Right? So I'm going to rattle off some examples here. The idea is not to do everything. Right, pick one thing, right? Well, if you already have something that works for you, stay committed to it. Stay consistent with it, right? It could be meditating on the word, right? It could be silence and solitude. Sometimes it's evangelism and just the courage to go out there and speak, right? And share with friends. Sometimes it's serving in the church, right? Sometimes it could be you taking a walk 
whatever works for you that helps you settle down, push away all distractions, and you're just there with God. And whatever frequency works for you as well. Right? But stay committed to that. You know, pick one thing, do one thing, do it consistently, be committed to it, whatever that rhythm might be, daily, every other day, whatever it may be. Right? Just so that you, you always have a, a way of seeing God, a way of just sitting in his presence. And, you know, I talk about silence and solitude, and sometimes that is such a hard thing to do, right? But what that does for me, when I do that, and I don't do it often, Sometimes I said I said a time and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna sit down here for 20 minutes and do nothing. Sometimes I'm already up, I'm walking around doing other things, and then I hear the alarm. And I'm like, what was that about? I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> I'm like, I'm supposed to be sitting down. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a process. Right? But this is what it does for me when I do it. It reminds me that I'm not in control. It reminds me that the world can move on and things can happen, whether I'm a part of it or not. It helps me settle back in God. Right? It could be fasting. Right? Whatever it is, just do something. Try it. It's going, it might be difficult at first right? because you might not be used to it. But keep pressing. You see, the desire to please God pleases God. The fact that you're trying pleases God, and God will help. Right? You don't have to have any elaborate plans. Just you know, pick a time, pick whatever works for you, and show up. God will lead the dance. You just follow. Right? That's it. Right? So in the process of doing this, right, in the process of gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, here are certain things that might, have ha- that might happen, and I'm sure some of you already have these experiences. Sometimes when you're sitting down in silence and solitude, God might direct your thoughts to a friend that you've been longing to share the gospel with. Right? Perhaps as you open the Bible to read, you see, that the, you see in the story of Moses that he's not a man defined by what he can do, and he did do a lot. But rather he's defined by his intimacy with God. Maybe as you take a walk with God, your eyes become open to the illusions you weave around yourself and how you define yourself and what you get value from. Right? Sometimes maybe as you meditate on, let's say, the Sermon on the Mount, the fears that normally grip your heart might suddenly, not, might suddenly losing their grip. They might not be as scary again. Right? Because you're reminded that even the hairs upon your head are numbered. And God takes account of all of that. And if God is doing that, taking care of everything else. Right? So, so that's what this path of the pilgrim, this path of looking upon God, gazing upon his beauty, that's how it intersects with our lives in practical ways and how we can help us even in the season of waiting. Right? And how we can be encouraged by that. And, and so we, we've talked about how some of the practical things we can get at is setting God as priority, and we pray about that. We pray for that desire, right? Then the next thing is abandonment into the hands of the Lord, which we peeled out from that uh, deep contrition of the heart that we see, the posture of the heart of the psalmist, right? The humility of his heart, right? And then we talked about recalling the character or the nature of God and then being committed to this path of God, 
this path of the pilgrim. And then we've talked about how we cannot do all of that except we know God, which again starts with praying for that desire. And then God guides us into these different practices that we can do or engage in. And this is one of them. You are all here this day, this morning. You could be on the beach somewhere else, but you're here. And this is part of it. Sometimes it's the praying together. It's someone you meet on the road that might just pray for you. I remember the, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking with Erin. Um, we just chatting and talking. And she was saying, how are you doing, Tolu? And I was about to say, yeah, I'm fine, you know. <laughs> And I'm like, you know what? Work is killing me. And she was like, you talk about it. And so we talked for a few minutes. It's like, let me pray for you. I'm like, sure. And she was praying. I didn't really hear everything she said. But a phrase she said stood out to me. She said, I pray that God humbles you enough so that you listen to him. And you go to sleep when you should go to sleep. And that actually touched me. Because I'm like, you know what? It really is pride. When I knew I should go do something, I was like, nah, I want to watch TV or something. Right? And, and see, it could be something like that. Right? And, and that's why we're here. Right? Going back to Psalm 27. Right? The last two verses where it says, um, I believe I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and courageous. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Speaks of the confidence of the psalmist. Right? In setting God as first. In abandoning himself to God, what would naturally come out of that is not necessarily deliverance from that particular situation as I want it, but there is a growing confidence and joy in God. There is a growing rest in the sufficiency of God. And when I say the sufficiency of God, it goes again beyond deliverance from that particular situation. It speaks of this pervasive sense of well-being. In God, knowing that no matter what happens, no matter how things turn out, God has my back. And somehow, we will come out of this the right way. So, despite the presence of adversaries, the psalmist is strongly convinced that God will rescue him. There is an expectation of deliverance. That's why he says, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, right? Basically saying here in this earth. But again, the deliverance is primarily after, and look at that verse again, I will see the goodness of the Lord. Not that I will see the end of my enemies. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Again, what the psalmist is really after is God. The deliverance he's after is God. Right Now, this isn't to say that we do not hope for what we want. We do. We pray about it. We lay it before God. And I'm not saying that whatever we pray about, God would definitely do for us. No. But what I am saying is he would do better. Right? What I am saying is God will always do better. And he would always point us back to himself. Now, the phrase, be strong and let your heart take courage. When you trace it through scripture, it's usually said to folks that are about to engage in battle. Right, So you see Moses and God actually encouraging Joshua with this. Right? You go to Deuteronomy 31, 7 and verse 23. You, you see Moses encouraging Joshua. And then you see God encouraging Joshua with the same words in Joshua 1, uh, verse 6, 7 and 9 and 18. And Joshua actually uses the same words to encourage the Israelites in Joshua 10, 25. 
David uses similar words with Solomon. Hezekiah uses similar words with his military officers when Sennacherib besieged Jerusalem. But before bracketing those words, be strong and let your heart take courage, our phrases, wait for the Lord. Right? So even though be strong and take courage makes it seem like you should be ready to take action. Right? The words before that and after that is wait for the Lord. And I love how the NIV application commentary, how we put what it says about this verse. It says, too often we find action preferable to waiting. Like Saul, we would rather take matters into our own hands and face the enemy boldly in our own strength rather than wait for the Lord. Waiting on God can be hard work. Yet, it is one way, perhaps the only way, of demonstrating God's strength that is made manifest in our weaknesses. So whenever we rush frantically about trying to do it, whatever that might be, on our own, what we are saying in effect is that there is no God. What we are saying in effect is, I got this God. I can do better. Back to what Nick said last week when he said when we grumble, every form of grumbling is basically saying, God, if I were in power, I would do better. Right? And so waiting is not resignation or despair. It's not. It's actually an exhibition of faith, of trust, and of commitment to God. Right? Waiting is the path of the pilgrim that acknowledges his or her need to rely on God alone. And if you're like me, waiting is hard. Like, I have my own schedule. I'm like, God, what are we doing? Let's go. <laughs> like, like Minlan was saying, <laughs> let's go, let's go. What's going on? I have my plans. Let, let's get on time. What's up, God? Get on time. Right? But God in his mercies doesn't do that. In his mercies, he actually leads me in a path that I struggle and I push back against. And at first, I'm so reluctant. Usually, at first, I actually say no and go a separate way. But in his mercies, it somehow brings me back. Right? But if we can trust in God, if as we put him first, and there's deep contrition in our heart, the posture of our heart, and we recall the character and the nature of God, and we are committed to the path of the pilgrim, if we do all of that, what comes out is that confidence in God. Right? And so we... We wait, ever so confident of our end, which is eternity with God, which Christ secured for us. And so we wait, becoming more dependent on Christ and becoming more like Christ, even as we, with unveiled faces, gaze upon the beauty of the Most High. What makes waiting worth it, right, what, what makes it possible for you to go through waiting, look back on it, and say, you know what? This was worth it. It's the confidence we have in the sacrifice of Christ. It's that we know how all of this ends, eternity with God. Right? We know we've been, there's been a predestination, and if you want to deal with that topic, talk to Nick. I'm not going to deal with it. <laughs> so there is a, a predestination pointing us towards Christ-likeness, right? 
And our eternity is already secure. So between then is the waiting. Right? If we can trust God with our eternal salvation, right, how much more trusting God with whatever we're going through, which I know is hard, which I know is difficult. Like I said, my, my friend has a stroke. I don't even know what to do. Like, it, it's just beyond my mind. What he has to deal with, what his wife has to deal with, what life looks like for him going forward. But one of the things we learn during waiting or the wilderness that we go through is that we learn to abandon outcomes into the hands of God. Right? And it's not a resignation again. We're abandoning it into the ever-capable hands of God. Right? We come to accept reluctantly at first that we do not have what it takes to make our situation come out right. Eventually, we are joyful that such outcomes are not dependent on us. If you noticed, uh, the subtitle of this message was The Humility of Waiting. And I haven't really talked about humility. Uh, and that's because everything we've talked about forms that humble heart posture of waiting on God, putting God as first, abandoning yourself to God, recalling the character and the nature of God, being committed to the path of the pilgrim, basically saying, I don't have the right path. I don't know the right path. I will follow you, God. Right. So uh, to end this uh, message, um, I want to try something I, I tried before where I'm going to have Esanam come up and read Psalm 139, and he's just going to read it once. Um, and what I want you to do is just sit down there be in God's presence, see what God might say to you, and just uh, have him, uh, listen up, come, he's just going to read Psalm 139. Uh, thank you, Paul. So just, uh, you just sit down and just settle in with God and hear whatever God might have to say to you, and just, um, just listen to him, just listen for how he loves you. Amen. O oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame is not, was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And I do not loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. 